CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Periodic Talks. Hi, I'm Gillian Jacobs. And I'm Deanna Reasonover. This is Periodic Talks. Each week, we rediscover our passion for science, tech, engineering, math, and this week, assassin spiders. It's STEM for those of us who really, really want some bedazzled goggles. <laughs> and you know what? I think our past guest... Maven the science maven. Sells some bedazzled goggles, so... Yes, she does. <laughs> Gillian, hi. Hi, how are you? Ooh, I was going to ask you the same thing. I'm really good. Can I, I know normally I ask you, you know, what's new first, but I really want to jump in and tell you something. Okay, great. I have someone that I want you to meet. Oh, I'm going to send you a link right now. Okay. Hold on. Try not to read the link. Okay, okay, okay. Oh my God. Oh my God. Yeah, meet Cooper. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. He's wow. meet Cooper. This is a new dinosaur that was just found in Australia. <gasps> Cooper <gasps> is two stories tall and the length of a basketball court. <laughs> oh my God. And you, please, everyone, um, go on NPR. Um, their website because you also have to see the the illustration of cooper are you um, crying i i might be <laughs> wow this is incredible <gasps> it is it's an australotitan cooperensis wow 80 to 100 feet long and 16 to 20 feet tall it, it weighed somewhere between 25 and 81 tons will you describe the picture that you see of cooper i would love to he he kind of has a happy smile because <laughs> he's like, hi, I'm new here. Yeah. He's got a very long neck and yeah, he, they kind of rendered him with friendly eyes and a happy smile. I don't know if that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he's got um, a long tail. So to me, he looks like an enormous... Um, Diplodocus. He's got very muscular legs, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he he does not. Cooper does not skip leg day. <laughs> this is awesome. Oh, my goodness gracious. <gasps> Thank you for that. That You're made welcome. my day. Oh, my God. Yay. Okay, well, um, we've got a great STEM fact. Our producer, Tamika, got a chance to speak with three of my co-stars from the new film series, Fear Street, the other day uh, when they were all doing press together at a big press junket. And so uh, we're going to hear from Benjamin Flores Jr., Olivia Scott Welch, and Kiana Madeira. And Kiana shared with us an excellent STEM fact. I'm Kiana Madeira, and this is this might not be super scientific, but <laughs> I've been told and I heard that trees communicate with each other through their roots in the super ground. scientific. Yeah, through their roots in the ground and they're like a community and they 
um, you know, if, if one tree is lacking and weak, then another tree kind of overcompensates and they work together in that way. And I just think that's so beautiful. Wow, that's really cool. Um, yes. Is there uh, anything you want to share with Gillian that I can surprise her with on her show? Uh, any message you want to send? Oh, That's Calabasas cute. 2021. Tell her I said that. <laughs> <laughs> Calabasas 2021. Yes. Tell Gillian she's absolutely amazing and she's inspiring. She's a boss and I yeah. love her. Tell her that um, it's incredible that she directs documentaries. That's so cool. That's and lit. To be a cool. female documentary director. That's sick. That's lit. Very cool. Thank you so much. It was so nice thank meeting you. Thank you. Congratulations thank you. on the series. Can't wait thank to see you. it. Thank you. Whoa. I got so nervous I knocked over um, a, a bar in my closet. <laughs> All these gowns spilled to the ground. <laughs> that... That, I love Kiana. I love all of them. Benji and Olivia, they're amazing. That tree fact. Uh, that is such a cool fact. And um, I want to learn so much more about that. Uh, it really is making me now think about what's happening in the root system below us and um, all the communication that's happening down there. Mm. Mm -hmm. So we have a really great episode for everyone today. We've got a fascinating story about a special effects designer who created a legendary horror movie monster. But first, we have a great interview with spider expert Hannah Wood. She's a research entomologist and curator of Arachnidia and Myripoda at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. Basically, she researches insects and spiders and a way that they evolve. She mostly studies assassin spiders now, which are spiders that attack other spiders. She's been observing them in the wild and looking at their fossils in the museum. So she knows a lot. Yes, we'll get into all of that. But we also learned some wild stuff about just how diverse spiders are. I I'm now convinced that they can live hmm, anywhere. Including your brain. <laughs> Okay, let's get to our interview with Hannah Wood. So your life's work is studying spiders. And yep. our biggest hope with this interview is that we can get our listeners as excited about spiders as you are. That is my biggest hope, too, because <laughs> I encounter all the time that people are freaked out. They hate spiders. You know, I would love to be able to convince them how cool spiders are. So do you have any like go to facts about spiders that really seem to hook people in and get them excited? Well, let's see. So here's a little story that I sometimes tell people is I once this was before I started grad school, but I was working as in a in a cafe and um, someone walked in with this beautiful spider tattoo. And I was like, oh, wow, I really like your tattoo. What species is it? You know, it was very artistically. It was true to life. It was almost like a scientific illustration. And she looked at me and said, there's more than one species. And it was like, wow. Yeah, there's more than one species and this. Even I knew this, but I think people don't understand how many species of spiders are really out there. Every week, it's increasing in numbers as arachnologists are describing new species, but we're up to over 49,000 species right now. And, and we estimate that that's probably only 25 to 50 percent of the total diversity. So we're still just trying to figure out what's even out there. Is, is there a reason that um, there are so many spider species? 
Yeah, that's the big question. What is it? Um, people think it may be because of their the innovative way they use silk. So they evolve silk mm. and they're using them for their egg cases. They use them to capture prey. Not all of them do this, but some do. They um, use that. They leave drag lines where they walk and they just have a diversity of silks. They also have a diversity of venoms that can be targeted to capture certain preys. So People think that it could be that they evolved venom, they evolved silk, and this allowed them to just radiate into all different kinds of lifestyles and ecologies and different niches. Another amazing thing that I learned doing some research for this interview is how old spiders are as species. Um, yeah. Can you talk about maybe some of the oldest fossils that have been found of spiders? Yeah, so I think the oldest spider fossil... I think it's in the 350 million, but I, wow. so for the spiders I study, I work on fossils of, of these groups as well as the living members. And there are fossils that go back 165 million years. There are fossils that are 95 million years old. There are some that are 40. I mean, they have the significant fossil record that shows they are out there. They've been around for a long periods of time, not just in one little area, but worldwide. And they're persisting over very, very long periods of time through mass extinction events. They're surviving. So it's really exciting. <laughs> so I'm curious, we talked a little bit about this, but um, I'd love to know some of the ways that spiders have evolved because they've been around for so long. I mean, you name it, spiders have it. They have any sort <laughs> of bizarre behavior. You know, we, we hear stories about, okay, the scariest spider with, with, that's aggressive and it's crazy venom. And you hear about the spiders that eat their mates when they mate. But um, there, there are spiders that live underwater. There are spiders that live in the tidal zone. There are spiders that their babies consume their bodies when, they're, when they give birth, you know, and it feeds their babies. There are spiders that when they mate, they bring a gift. I mean, there's all, all sorts of behaviors from their unusual mating behaviors to predatory behaviors. Just in predatory behaviors, there are spiders that build webs to capture prey. A whole variety of shapes in web architecture. And um, the spiders that I study, many of them prey on other spiders. They're specialized to go and attack other spiders. They follow their drag lines. They've evolved modifications to hunt them down and do a really good job at capturing them. The, some of the spiders I study have some of the fastest known arachnid movements. By arachnid, I mean spiders and their relatives, so scorpions, ticks. I record them with a high-speed camera up to 100,000 frames a second just to capture the movement of their, their jaws closing. So... It's wow. a huge wow. diversity. There are spiders that have evolved to mimic bird poop, spiders that have evolved to, they have a little, they live with ants and they prey on the ants they eat and they look like the ants that they eat. It, it, there's so much diversity. I could go on and on and on. Bird poop spiders <laughs> remind me of your bird poop caterpillars, Gillian. That's exactly what I was going to yeah. say. Yes. I, I met some caterpillars that also at one stage in their development mimic bird poop. Oh, wow. It's a useful defense technique. Yes, it's a common, I guess, in evolution, things are don't want to eat bird poop. <laughs> Spring runways 2021, Same. bird poop. <laughs> so beyond all the incredible facts about spiders, 
I think it's important to understand why they are actually important for our world, for our ecosystem. How would you describe it? Basically, sell us on why spiders are important, please. Yeah. So spiders are important for many, many, many reasons. Um, So from my perspective, I just enjoy them because it's this crazy thing that has evolved. It's been here for millions, hundreds of millions of years. And look at the diversity. It can show us our place in the world, you know, all the different species that have evolved. And it can really philosophically, I think, give us a perspective about where we are in the world. In a practical sense, I mean, they're a part of the ecosystem. They're eating, they're eating pest species. They're eating mosquitoes. They are doing a lot for you that people don't realize. And um, people get freaked out by spiders. And spiders get a really bad rap in the media. And they get blamed for any sort of bite and doctor, even doctors are, you know, they have no idea what the bite was. And they're saying, oh, it was a spider. And chances are it was not a spider. It was a blame an insect. If you're going to blame something, blame an <laughs> insect or a bacteria. Um, there are people that get bit by spiders. It does happen, but it is rare. It, it doesn't happen that much compared to what you hear about in the media. It must be so hard when you someone's like, "What? What is your area of study?" And you say spiders, and they're like, "Ah!" <laughs> you know the name spider since everyone screams. <laughs> Can you think of anything um, in your life where you've been scared of it and you learned to not be? Ooh, that's a great question. Or if if not that, you learned to at least change your perception of mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. I used to be afraid of bees. I mean, I was strung, I was stung by a bee when I was a kid, and it really hurt. Hmm. But now I feel, like, so protective of bees because I know they're having a hard time in the world. <laughs> and so now I feel, like, so appreciative of the role that bees play in our world, and I want there to be more bees. So now... I try and um, have plants that bees like and actually encourage bees in my life. And so I'm around bees all the time now and I don't feel afraid of them. That's awesome. How about you? Yes. So mine is kind of controversial because I know a lot of people love these things, um, but I didn't necessarily have the greatest experience with them growing up. And that's dogs. Mm. Uh, And I feel like saying you're afraid of dogs in L.A. is like saying you're, um, you know, afraid of air, which is something that's around everywhere. But, um, you know, I I am around a lot of dogs now. I try not to react in fear. Most dogs I've met, the vast majority have been sweeties. And this is regardless of species. Um, I know some people are scared of certain species. I just in general, I was not necessarily the hugest fan of dogs. And now, not right now, because I have a cat. But I'm thinking about getting a dog. Wow. Yeah. Now, I think I think what you talked about, which is that the media and, and people have kind of given spiders a bad rap, is why a lot of people are afraid of spiders. Mm-hmm. I saw an interview where you said that you thought spiders were beautiful. So I would love for you to describe the beauty that you see in spiders. Oh, they are. They're beautiful creatures. And when I started out in my career, I mean, I... I too was probably like most people where I didn't I didn't appreciate what spiders had to offer. I got into this field because I wanted to travel to Madagascar 
So I was working. Someone said they would send me to Madagascar if I did a project on spiders, one of my mentors. Um, And I just I had no idea. I'd always loved arthropods. Quickly, could you tell us what an arthropod is? Arthropods are things with an exoskeleton on the outside. So these are crustaceans, you know, crab, shrimp. Um, They're the myriapods, millipedes, centipedes, insects, and arachnids. So spiders, scorpions. Um, And I really wanted to study these insects that to me looked like little robots. They were so hard on the out, you know, they had all this sclerotization. They looked like robots. They looked like aliens. Spiders were a little squishy to me. (laughs) I started getting into spiders. I started doing research on them and I just was fascinated. I, I could not believe how much diversity there is in their shapes, their colors, their behaviors. Um, And they're so different than anything that humans can relate to. To me, it is something that's very fascinating in like studying an alien world. So I just, what I most appreciate about spiders is how different they are than us and how much they have diversified on our planet into just a huge variety of shapes and ecologies. Do you pick up on any common themes when people tell you why they're afraid of spiders? Does it seem to come from, is it really just like books and movies and TV shows or is it bad encounters as a child or what do you, why do you think it is that people are afraid of spiders? So I've asked people, I've shown people in talks, a picture of spider fangs, you know, the front view of their face with their, their chalicery, which are like jaws, and their fangs at the end. I said, this is where the venom comes from. Sorry, does this picture scare anybody? And nobody's scared. Nobody's scared. And it's like, well, this is huh. this is hmm. why you should be scared. So what is it that scares you about spiders? And people will raise their hand and they say, it's the number of legs, it's how hairy <laughs> they are, and it's the way oh. they move. So... Oh, yeah. <laughs> But but the venom, I want to say all the majority of spiders do have venom in their fangs, but most of it is it's not going to do anything to humans. They're not going to bite you. So I don't want to scare people about the venom, but that's usually the part, you know, that's realistically a legitimate reason for why you should be scared of a spider. But that's often not what really scares people about spiders. Gillian, how do you feel about spiders? Well, I I certainly grew up afraid of spiders, but in the last couple of years, I am trying to get to the like, okay, I'm going to usher the spider out of my house phase rather than try and harm the spider. Um, And yeah, you're making me also think of a time when I was in high school where I suddenly got this big red welt on my leg and everyone told me it was a spider bite, but now I'm rethinking it and maybe it wasn't a spider bite at all. Yeah, we told you back in high school, please stop planting that poison ivy. You didn't listen. <laughs> what about you, Deanna? I, you know, I just the other day, I saw my father-in-law and there was a bug in the house and I was also ushering it out of the house. I was putting it in a piece of Tupperware to take it out. And uh, he was like, you're not going to let him live here? <laughs> it oh. never occurred to me like, yeah, a spider needs a hope too. Then I felt really bad, and I was like, I guess I am. And it was fine. I'm fine. Look at me. <laughs> My advice is for people wanting to start appreciating spiders, start with the salticids. These are the jumping spiders. They're mm-hmm. like the cuddly, cute spiders 
of the spider world. They are furry. They look at you. They've got their big eyes. They're charismatic. They're adorable. So start start with the jumping spiders and then work your way out from there. That's my advice. <laughs> Should we take a look at this cute, cuddly spider? Let's do it. Um, well, it's fuzzy. You know what? I guess it's kind of cute. It's colorful. Okay, so it's it's red and it has a blue stripe mm-hmm. and it's got four eyes that I can see. Mm-hmm. And it's got these little um, hairs coming out of the top of its head that actually kind of look like eyelashes. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I, you know, I'm going to decide I'm not afraid of this spider. That's what I'm going to decide. Would you let it crawl up your arm? Okay. Um, <laughs> too far? A bridge too far? <laughs> if, if if I was told it was highly unlikely that it would bite me, okay. I, I'm going to try and be more brave going forward in life. So sure, yes, yes. You? No. Listen, <laughs> there's... <laughs> no, not that one. But there is actually one <laughs> below it that I would okay. let crawl on my own. Let's see. I'm scrolling. I'm scrolling. I'm sc- Okay. Yes. Yeah. That one looks more like kind of leaf-like. It's green. Uh-huh. Yep. It's less It's less hairy, actually, which I think helps. Yes. Um, and, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's, it's sort of cute. It is sort of cute. Okay. I'm, I'm getting into the different looks of the different spiders. <laughs> I think they're really cool. And I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> you know... I can respect them, appreciate them, and not have them crawl on my arm. How about that? Yeah, I think that's very fair. I think that's very, very fair. Okay, let's pause the conversation and take a quick break. We'll be right back. And we're back. Okay, so let's talk more about your specific, your spiders. Do you call them your spiders? I, um, <laughs> I do call them my spiders, and that's probably not really accurate. <laughs> oh. Yeah, so you study assassin spiders, is that correct? Yeah, so it's this group of palpamanoids um, that they're not very speciose, so they don't have a huge number of species. I think there's a little less than 300, um, but again, we still have a lot of species to describe. But it's not huge, but they're a very important lineage in the history of all spiders. They're this group that I believe at one time was widespread and dominant and abundant in the in the world. Hmm. And then the, these other spiders evolved and sort of took over. And now they're just holding on in these little tiny parts of the world, you know, holding on kind of as these in these little refugial areas. Okay, so what makes an assassin spider an assassin spider? They attack other spiders? Is that why they're called assassin spiders, or am I incorrect in that? No, you you are correct. And some of the families of these spiders we don't we don't know that much about. But at least two of the families, we know that they go and they target other spiders. Some are excellent at breaking into little spider retreats. They go in, they stalk them in their retreat, they walk into their retreat or they wait for them to come back to their retreat and then they attack them. Others go out and hunt 
they'll drop down onto webs, spiders in webs, or they'll stand at the edge and get the spider to come to them. So they've evolved these amazing behaviors that allow them to to prey on other spiders. Okay, I got to ask, these are not the cute, cuddly ones you described earlier. What appeals to you about these spiders? (laughs) They are cute, cuddly spiders. I will tell you this. (laughs) I have shown people pictures of the spiders I study, people that are terrified of spiders, and they say, oh, those don't scare me. So some of the spiders I study look like, they're called pelican spiders because they look like little birds. They (laughs) they have one, one set of their eyes, one pair of their eyes has gotten really large. And so it looks Mm. kind of like a vertebrate. By vertebrate, Mm. I mean things with a backbone. They look like they've got these two big eyes. They look like they have a head and a neck and sort of a long beak in front. I think they're cute and cuddly. I think they're adorable. (laughs) I should be more specific. It was the behavior of jumping down. (laughs) But they're not well, a threat to us, yeah. only to other spiders. Think of them. They're your superheroes. They're out there killing other spiders, you know, for people that hate spiders. these They're killing other spiders. Um, what are the questions you're trying to answer with your research? I am very, in- I have always been very interested in, I look at, I look at something, I look at its shape and saying, what is it for? Why? How is evolution working to produce all of these strange shapes and what are they used for? And so my field is, is called functional morphology, where you're trying to understand the shape of things and how it functions. And then I'm looking at it in a comparative way. So across a bunch of different species and saying, what can this tell us about how evolution occurs, how different traits diversify into many different forms. And so the part I'm interested in is the calissery. These are the jaws. You can think of them as being equivalent to jaws of spiders. And they have a huge number of different functions in their calissery, the way they attack different prey, what they do with their calissery that may relate to how these spiders have diversified over long periods of time. And so my research, I'm looking at these, the assassin spiders and asking within assassin spiders over long periods of time, how have their, these jaw parts evolved and diversified? And then I'm also looking across, starting to look across all spiders, trying to understand Mm -hmm. how their mouth parts are being used and how it relates to trait diversification. That is really fascinating. It's really fascinating. How do spider uh, calissery relate to something? I'm trying to think of something that I've maybe seen more of, like an ant's pinchers. Yeah, mm. exactly. Insect mandibles. Think of them in the same, you know, it's very it's very similar. So they have these long, these parts, they're jointed structures. They have a fang at the tip. Venom glands run runs through the calissery um, and they, they use their calissery not just for capturing prey, but they use them for a variety of things. They Some species carry their egg cases with them. They use them for in mating. Um, they can use them for digging burrows. They're the grasping structures of the spider. So if a spider needs to manipulate some object or carry some object or preen or do something um, where it, it uses its calissery. So these are very important structures in spider biology, not just for capturing prey and not just for envenomation. 
Spider jaws. Who knew? Who knew spiders could do so many things with their calissery? I'm I'm now going to think less about the biting and the venom. I don't think about carrying things and preening and, and oh, all the preening. other Oh, <laughs> Oh, that's really cute. You know what? When I just sit and think about spider jaws, it may sound scary, but like we have jaws. <laughs> you know what I mean? True. Babies have jaws. Dogs carry things in their jaws. I'm just saying that a lot of things that we find cute and acceptable have similar mechanisms, but we're not necessarily scared of those. I love how when you're like, okay, your spiders aren't the cute, cuddly ones. And she's like, they are the cute, cuddly ones. <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. I didn't, I did not know. My my eyes have not been trained for spider cuddliness, but I'm learning. And that's the We're important learning. part. We're learning. We're learning. Was there anything else that really surprised you in the field? I, I want to say my my first time going to Madagascar, there were cyclones, there were leeches, there were that was more of a surprise to me than the spiders. Um, but let's see the what else surprised me in the field, you know, just trying to understand their their behaviors and their I would often get them to mate and watch them mating. And that was quite remarkable because, you know, spiders communicate with each other. They the, the spiders I study, they have these little these little files and picks that they rub together and it makes little tiny vibrations. And so they kind of talk to each other during courtship oh. and mating. Oh. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. They make little songs to each other. And um, what? yeah, these little tiny vibrations, they're just chatting away with each other. It's quite remarkable. Oh, I love the idea of one spider just being like, hey, you like me? <laughs> Circle yes, one, yes or no. Yeah. And the females like, what's well, kind of like, do I want to eat you or do I want to mate with you? You know, the mm. females trying to decide that. <laughs> now, I this is more related to birds, but, you know, birds, male birds tend to have like different coloring than the female birds. Is that true of spiders? It is true of spiders, but spiders in general are not very colorful because most of them are active at night. But then you go to your little, the salticids, right? The jumping spiders, the ones I told you, the cute, cuddly sort of mammals of the spider world. These guys are active in the day and they have evolved lots of colors, particularly in the males. So the males are the flashy, showy ones that do the really fancy little dance for the female. The females are kind of drab looking they all are kind of brown, you know, they, they tend to look more similar to each other. And then the males have these very vibrant colors um, to attract a mate. But most spiders are active at night. And instead of having fancy colors, they do, they have fancy ways of communicating. They have their, they probably have a huge diversity of smells and chemical communication that we know nothing about that they're possibly communicating with a female in that way. Um, but yeah, it's true what you said about birds, but mainly among the ones that are active in the daytime. Hmm. So we also wanted to talk to you sort of maybe about some big picture um, ideas or reflections that you've had over the course of your career working with spiders. Have you thought about our role as human beings in the lives of spiders? You know, we know so little about spiders. And of course, the more we know, the more we can we can protect these different species. But um, there are there are a few species that are listed, you know, as threatened or endangered. But most of the time with spiders, we know we don't know enough about them 
to really even understand whether they're rare or whether they're on the verge of extinction. But there are there are spiders that are confined to caves, for example, or they're confined to one mountaintop and that's it. And you you know that these spiders, it it is very likely that if you lose that cave or the climate changes, you're going to lose that species. Um, really, the, the best thing we can do if we want to protect spiders is we have to know more about them. We have to study them. We have to figure more out so that we even know what their diversity is so that we can protect it. Hmm. And how does your work allow you to think more broadly about how much of the world is interconnected? Oh, my, you know, for me on a personal level, I just look in a microscope at a, at a 99 million year old fossil and it just blows me away. I mean, I can't believe that I'm seeing this thing that once used to walk around on the, you know, 99 million years ago with all these other creatures that have since gone extinct before we were around. Um, And for me, on a philosophical level, it really puts my life into perspective. You know, you read the news and it's like, here we are worried about all these little things, these little human problems that are you know, just a brief moment in time. And here for millions of years, things have been evolving and changing and species are going extinct and new species are arising. And it really changes your view on life and hopefully causes you, okay, maybe I need to stop stressing about this one little thing and try to appreciate the bigger picture. What do you want to leave people with? You know, we talked about we want people to get excited about spiders. And what's your final pitch? If you're going to say to people. <laughs> my final this pitch. This is why spiders are great. Yeah. My final pitch would be, you know, just just take an hour, take two hours. Look at some pictures of spiders. Look at something. Don't don't go to like the pest eliminator websites. Go to just your basic, like, spider, beautiful picture, spider diversity, something, search something on Google that pulls up some of the diversity, start to read about them, start to learn about them and realize, just try to realize that maybe a lot of what you've been told, while some of it may be true, it's a very small percentage of what's out there. And there's so much more to learn about spiders than than maybe what your preconceived notions uh, are telling you. Thank you so much. This was such a great conversation. For sure. I had a great time. Yeah, thank you. And um, I'm going to definitely do that. I'm going to search some more spider images um, and I'm going to say thank you when I see spiders now (laughs) instead of running away in fear. (laughs) Good. Glad to hear it. Just one last break, and when we come back, it's story time. And we're back. It's story time. Yay, story time. Okay. (laughs) This is the story of Millicent Patrick, animator, actress, and designer of the creature from the Black Lagoon. So her original name was Mildred Rossi, and she was born in El Paso in 1915. Although she was born in Texas, she spent most of her formative years in California at one of the most famous construction sites of the 20th century, Hearst Castle. 
Her father was a structural engineer and spent roughly 10 years working on William Randolph Hearst's sprawling estate in San Simeon, California. The project was so large, it took about 28 years to complete. Hearst Castle is remarkable because of its scale, grandeur, and opulence. It was also designed by a woman, architect Julia Morgan. Julia was the first female licensed architect in California and was known for her use of reinforced concrete. I wonder what growing up on that construction site was like for little Mildred. The town of San Simeon was very remote and isolated, but there was a nonstop flow of movie stars and political powerhouses to the estate. William Randolph Hearst was, at one time, one of the most powerful people in the media. Did her proximity to all these famous and powerful people plant the desire to work in Hollywood herself? Was she inspired by seeing a female architect design this massive project? We can't be sure, but it does seem that Hearst's wife had a profound effect on Mildred because she changed her name from Mildred to Millicent. And that was apparently inspired by her deep admiration for Mrs. Millicent Hearst. Millicent Patrick's time in San Simeon came to an end after her father regularly clashed with the architect and was fired by Hearst. Although the loss of her father's job must have been stressful for her family, it got Millicent out of the small, remote town and into the far more metropolitan city of Los Angeles. She eventually studies illustration and drawing at an art school, then lands a job at Walt Disney Animation in 1939. And it's good timing, too. This is just two years after the release of Snow White. Hollywood was in what is sometimes called its golden age. Powerful studios ruled the industry and real money started pouring into the movie-making business. Over at Disney, Millicent first worked in the ink and paint department painstakingly hand-painting thousands of individual cells that make up animated film. So animated cells were made of a plastic polymer and were colorless, transparent, and flexible. Inkers would draw the outlines of characters on one side of the cell, and painters would color in the figures on the other side. So, Millicent was working in Hollywood, but it wasn't exactly glamorous. Her talent and skill didn't go unnoticed, though. Millicent was promoted to the animation and effects department, making her one of the first female animators at Disney. You can see her work in films like Fantasia and Dumbo. We're not exactly sure why Millicent decided to leave her job and ultimately her career in animation behind, but... After a few years, Millicent left Disney and began working as an actress. She became an extra and bit player in Hollywood movies. Even though she was on set and in front of the camera, she never stopped drawing. During her downtime, she would sketch portraits of the other actors, including four portraits of her co-star Errol Flynn. He bought them all. In 1952, she met Bud Westmore, head of the makeup department at Universal and a member of the famous Westmore family. For decades, they were synonymous with makeup in Hollywood. Bud and his brothers ran the makeup departments of most major Hollywood studios. Bud was impressed with Millicent's drawing ability and hired her in his makeup department. At the time, Universal was the home for horror, and many of the famous characters like The Mummy, Frankenstein, The Wolfman, and Dracula. 
Not long into her career at Universal, Millicent was tasked with designing the creature from the Black Lagoon. How do you even create a monster? Where do you even start? Well, Millicent took inspiration from fossils, specifically from the Devonian period about 400 million years ago. She got this reference from the script. And the Devonian period is sometimes called Age of Fishes and was when four-legged creatures began adapting to walk on land. The images of these fossils combined with Millicent's imagination resulted in what is sometimes referred to as the last great universal monster. Gilman, as people at Universal refer to him, is covered head to toe in scales with webbed hands and feet. To me, his head kind of looks like Darth Vader's helmet with some frilly gills. <laughs> Millicent said, I spent six weeks with the Gilman. He changed his shape three times before he was able to win the approval of the executives who inspected him. No matter how badly he scares people, I think he's cute. Audiences agreed. He was terrifying, but also strangely sympathetic. Like the other legendary universal monsters, he seemed to evoke pity and fear. And the image of Gilman swimming through the depths of the lagoon has stuck with audiences since the movie was released in 1954. Realizing they had a potential hit on their hands, the Universal Publicity Department decided to send Millicent on a nationwide press tour. They wanted to call it The Beauty Who Created the Beast. Her boss, Bud Westmore, was apparently having none of it. He was the head of the makeup department. Why were they sending Millicent out to do interviews? Never mind, she designed the creature. He felt he deserved the credit. Universal agreed to a compromise. They changed the name of the tour to The Beauty Who Lives with the Beast and assured Bud that Millicent would credit him at every turn. I guess that still wasn't enough for Bud, because at the end of her month-long press tour, he fired Millicent and took her name off the credits. Oh my gosh, can you imagine going across the country for a month doing interviews and press appearances, Mm. celebrating your work on this movie only to be fired as soon as you get back? No. Her work on The Gill Man was the apex and the end of her career in Hollywood. Millicent never worked behind the scenes on another movie. I don't know if she tried to get a job in a different makeup department, but it probably didn't help that the Westmore brothers ran all the major studios in Hollywood. The Gill Man remains her only creature design, but her work lives on in the popular imagination and continues to influence filmmakers to this day. Director Guillermo del Toro first saw the film at seven years old and said, the creature was the most beautiful design I'd ever seen. In 2017, he released The Shape of Water, which was heavily inspired by Gilman and Millicent's work, and it won Best Director and Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Millicent wasn't around to witness this incredible tribute to her work. She died in 1998 at the age of 88. If you want to learn more about Millicent's life and career, check out Mallory O'Meara's book, Lady from the Black Lagoon. I feel like Hearst Castle is such a Los Angeles and a California thing because I had never heard of it until I moved to California. Same. And, And I feel like, I don't know. I'm trying to think of the other things that you just start to hear about when you move to California. I actually have one that I've never that I'd never heard of until I moved here. Brown widow spiders. 
going oh. back to, what did you think about our conversation with Anna Wood? You know, I'm not going to say I'm completely unafraid of spiders now after mm-hmm. this conversation, but I'm definitely way more interested in them than I ever was before. And another spider that I discovered doing research before this interview, I think is really cool. And I want to mention, which is uh, some people call it the diving bell spider. Ooh. And they kind of create an air bubble for themselves so they can breathe underwater. She mentioned briefly some spiders that can breathe underwater. So um, they have scientists have discovered that this species of spider creates like an air bubble around its its head that gives it a day's worth of air. Wow. Um, and so they can breathe underwater in lakes and ponds, which I think is pretty cool. That is very cool. It's like a scuba diver. Yes, exactly. I'm impressed. I mean, okay. I got to give it up to spiders for that. <laughs> I got to get got to give it up for the spiders. <laughs> I have a spider, too, that I I looked at because I was like, I think part of not being afraid of things is learning more. Mm-hmm. So I found a spider that I thought was pretty cool called a spiny orb weaver. Ooh, let me look And it it's, this is, you know, there's lots of different kinds, actually. Um, there's like 70 different species that have like these little kind of like visible spines on their back that some of them look kind of like little spikes you put on there. They're harmless to humans, but at least this one I found looks really cool. Its back is sort of like white with black spots and like red spikes on it. It sort of looks like something that someone would wear to like the Met Gala. Uh Uh-huh. Absolutely. I'm looking at images of it right now, and you are right. It does look like an incredible piece of art. Mm -hmm. I mean... Also, you know what I'm thinking about now looking at these webs is it's making me think of learning, trying to learn how to crochet, um, (laughs) you know, and I really also total admiration to spiders because I really tried so hard to crochet a hyperbolic (laughs) um, shape and could not do it. And they are able to do amazing things. I did it, though. So maybe I've been a spider this whole time. (laughs) Plot twist. (laughs) Oh, it is time to read some reviews. Do you want to read this one? Sure. Here's one from CPRGEE. Deanna Reesonover, heirloom bean and vegan ice cream lover, and Gillian Jacobs, vegan ice cream lover and all things bird, are two seriously smart, cool, and curious ladies. Their interviews seem so completely organic. The brief stories like Maud E. Callen, like, wow. Why aren't we celebrating this lady? And so many more, but you have to listen. Yes, you know, people have to listen. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for knowing about my beans. <laughs> <laughs> this listener mentioned our story with Maud Callen. Do you have a favorite story time story so far from our show? I think I liked learning about Charles Drew. Mm-hmm. I'd already, I'd learned a little bit about him in school, but I, I didn't know a lot of the details that um, we got to talk about on the show. So that was really cool for me to find out more information that I thought I kind of knew, but I didn't. <laughs> yeah. What about you? Um, I As I asked you the question, I went, oh no, I can't think of all of our story time stories. <laughs> How quickly can I pull up our podcast on the podcasting app? (laughs) I should have subscribed. Uh, uh, um, uh, You know, the Maude Callen story, I really is one that has stuck with me. Uh, I'm not just saying that because CPRG uh, mentioned it as well. But um, 
Uh, please do rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. We might read your comments on the show, and it, and it helps new people find the show. And so we really appreciate anyone who takes the time to rate and review. Hey, if you want to get a pair of the bedazzled goggles we mentioned at the top of the show and so much other cool stuff, uh, Raven Baxter has a website called smartypants.store where she sells the bedazzled goggles and much more. This podcast is produced by Tamika Weatherspoon. Our engineering and theme music is by Brendan Burns. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson, and we get research assistance from Juliana Torres. Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Josephine Martirana. Periodic Talks is a production of Stitcher. Stitcher.